But yeah, uh, my name is Jeff Johns, Jeff with a G, so G-E-O-F-F, so one of the weird Jeffs, okay? So, so more of the sophisticated British spelling. Um, and yeah, so if you don't know uh, a bit about me, I've got, so this whole thing is going to be on slides, um, so you can look up at the screens here. Um, yeah, I work with Ratio Christi, which is a apologetics organization, which I'll get into. But let's learn a little bit about myself here. Uh, so this is my family here. Ariel, Miles, and August. And I was raised on the mean streets of Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, and uh, yeah, I skateboarded all around downtown. Um, and uh, fun place to grow up. I went to Appleton West High School, uh, home of the Terrors, which is a weird name for a mascot. Um, they've got like a head of a fox on Bucky Badger. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they're called the terrors. What do they like? Put terror in the opposing team? I don't know. Uh, but really, my um, my my main friends were not typically at uh, West. Um, I had a, a lot of friends at Calvary Chapel Appleton, uh, and so Landon was my youth pastor back when I was a young whippersnapper, <laughs> skateboarding around the parking lot and stuff, um, and. The youth group was really great, and it was kind of one of the first times I really got to hear the word preach verse by verse. It was, it was a really cool time. Let's see, in high school, I was in a band uh, called Johnny OK. Um, so we were a ska band. Does anybody recall this genre of music? Right, it's basically like, like sped up reggae rock with a horn section. So, so we, um, we, we were at a show, and we found this display case, and we thought we could do an artsy band photo. So they put me in the display case because um, we thought it was really cool, right? 17-year-old logic, right? So, so uh, yeah, we played all around the Fox Valley. Uh, we, actually, this is our show at LifeFest. Uh, so we played in front of like 500 people or so. Um, then we all broke up because we went to college. Um, but uh, super fun times. Uh, let's see. I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College, um, which Landon went to and Sonny did, right? Yeah, so this was uh, back in 2004. Um, basically, Calvary Chapel Bible College is like a Christian paradise. It's like Christian Disneyland. Like, like look at it. It's like this like, picturesque like, like Spanish mission property. It's incredible, right? Unfortunately, they had to sell the property because of COVID stuff, which is really sad. But had some really great times, took some wonderful courses. Uh, took my first apologetics course, which helped me work through some doubts and some issues. Um, let's see. They even have hot springs there, natural hot springs you can just soak in. I mean, it smells like eggs, but, but you can just kind of hang out there. Um, incredible place. After that, uh, I graduated and I moved to Canada. Um, no, I wasn't being wanted by the FBI. Um, I uh, had some opportunities to teach and serve at a satellite campus in Kelowna, British Columbia. Um, and so I was there for about three years. Um, so there it is, really, really cool area of Canada. Um, there, that's Lake Okanagan. It's like an extremely deep and narrow lake. It's very much like Loch Ness in Scotland. Allegedly, there, there is a sea monster that lives in there too called the Ogopogo. I never saw him, but um, so yeah, I served there, uh, taught some Bible courses, and eventually became the youth pastor at the church there. And so I served there for a number of years. And let, let's see, during the summers, anybody heard of Lake Lundgren Bible Camp? Right, so I worked at Lake Lundgren as a counselor for five summers, um, and it was just a wonderful time of serving the Lord. Um, 
And uh, during that time, there was a girl that liked me a lot, right? I, I really wasn't aware of it, but I kind of had a hint. Sorry, ladies, sometimes us guys can be a little dense when it comes to that kind of stuff. So in summer of 2010, um, her name was Arielle. I got the courage to ask her out, and a year and a half later, we were married. Um, so we actually got married right up at Lake Lundgren uh, in, in the middle of winter, almost exactly 10 years ago. Um, time flies, doesn't it? And uh, snow was falling. It was cool. Uh, she was working with Crew, Campus Crusade, and so I went on staff part-time to work with Crew uh, to do campus ministry at St. Norbert College, right? So I kind of did like a little ministry to Catholic students. Um, really great, and uh, gained a love for apologetics there as I was talking with a lot of non-Christians too and getting very difficult questions. Um, now I, along with the ministry, I work at Providence Academy in Green Bay. So I teach worldview and apologetics for the juniors and seniors there. Uh, which is pretty fun. And we're actually excited because we're moving into a brand new building in a few weeks. Uh, I got a master's degree in apologetics from Luther Rice Seminary down in Atlanta. Uh, really good time of learning there. And here's my kiddos. Here comes the cute photos. Uh, so this is uh, August. He, he's now four, but this is when he was much chubbier. He's slimmed down a little bit. Um, and there he is in full vacation mode. Um, don't you wish you were doing that right now? Yes. Just sitting in a floaty, warm weather with a hunk of watermelon? It's great, right? Um, and there he is, look at that, just so, just so adorable. Um, and this is baby number two, this is baby Miles. Um, he's got a little more of my hair color, which I believe is auburn, I think that's, that's the color. Um, so there's an adorable photo of him, and here's him looking like a frog. Um, so that was, at the, that was at the Nature Center. Um, yeah, so we live right now in Luxembourg uh, on a farm, actually. So we have a six-acre farm, kind of like a farmette, and that's literally the property there. And I tell people that I basically live on a petting zoo. Uh, so we got all kinds of animals. We got sheep, uh, dogs. Um, we had a llama, uh, but he was kind of a jerk because he would always spit at us. Um, so we ate him. No, we didn't eat him. Um, that's not true. I told that joke at our first meeting for RC, and there was a kid from Ecuador there, and he peeped up. He's like, no, we actually eat those there. That meat is delicious. And I'm like, okay, dude. Um, so yeah, we actually uh, have a, a little bit of a business. We breed dogs and sheep, um, and uh, it's fun stuff. Um, so there's some of our sheep there. Um, and there's a selfie with me with our donkey. Um, so that's fun. All right, so that's a little bit about myself. Um, as I mentioned, I work with Ratio Christi, uh, Campus Apologetics Alliance up at UWGB. And uh, Ratio Christi, I, I know it sounds like a weird name, it stands for the reason of Christ. And it, this was started by students at Appalachia State in Boone, North Carolina. Anybody who's been in that part of the country? Uh, so this was in 2007 partially in response to something called the New Atheism Movement. So basically students were just kind of getting beat up with questions from their professors, questions from their friends, and really wrestling with doubt. So they wanted to start a club where they could just get together and find some answers to help tackle their doubts. Um, and it blossomed, and so now we're serving on over 160 campuses in the US and abroad, which is pretty neat. So we got other chapters all across the country at Purdue, 
UCLA, Texas A&M, the Ohio State University, right? Got to put the V in there. Rutgers and a whole bunch of other ones. And for now, we're the only chapter in the state of Wisconsin at GB. We had one in, at Madison, but the main guy there graduated. Um, so who knows, maybe the Lord will allow us to grow. So uh, my local mission field is at GB, cool place. Um, we, we do a lot of tabling, so I'm constantly setting out the table, doing surveys with students, asking them questions about worldview and uh, telling them the gospel. Um, it's fun stuff. I'm going to be doing that like tomorrow, basically. Um, and yeah, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to actually do some apologetics. Um, so, and by the way, that word doesn't mean to say you're sorry, like to apologize, um, even though you should learn to do that from time to time. Apologetics just comes from the Greek word apologia and means to make a defense, make a reasoned defense. So I'm going to give you guys an apologetic argument. Um, and when I say argument, I don't mean I'm going to fight with you, just like a logical, rational argument. So it'll be a little more of an academic talk, but bear with me, all right? Stick, stick with me, okay? Okay, so did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Turns out you can talk about this and it's not even Easter. You're like, whoa, you, you can do that? Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways you could argue for this, okay? Because after all, this is kind of the centerpiece of our faith, isn't it? So what we're going to do is we're going to do something called the timeline argument. And it, it's an argument that uh, maybe doesn't argue for it directly, but almost indirectly. I'll show you what I mean. Okay. So here's the minute you talk about Jesus and the resurrection with skeptics and students on campus have told me this, you get this question. And maybe you've wondered this. Could the central Christian claim of the risen Jesus be the result of slow, drawn-out, mythical embellishment? How do we know that the message was transmitted early and accurately? So maybe you've been reading the Bible and you wonder that. How did the original message that made its way into the text how do we know that that's not some kind of embellishment or, or things got garbled? And there, is, there are a, a number of ways to tackle this. So let's take a look at the standard skeptical view of the New Testament. So if you, if you talk to like skeptical New Testament scholars, um, historians that aren't Christians, here's kind of the, the, the standard stuff you'll find. So I don't know if you've ever heard of what's called the historical Jesus versus the Christ of faith. So typically, they'll make this distinction. They'll say, look, there's, there's the Christ of faith that we all know and believe in, okay? Son of God, rose from the dead, did miracles, all that kind of stuff. But then they'll say, but there's the actual Jesus of history. This is the actual person who lived and breathed. And what they're going to say is that these two things are different. So the Jesus that made its way into the creeds, like the Nicene Creed, um, isn't the same thing as the real guy who actually lived. So this is common fare, right? And uh, even in the past 200 years, there's been this thing called the quests for the historical Jesus. We're going on a quest, right? Um, and there's been these, uh, these secular scholars have tried to find out who the real Jesus is. You know, maybe he's like a social revolutionary, right? Maybe he's just a traveling poet. And there's been like three different quests for him, right? Um, and, uh, and I'd say, well, well, he's just the son of God. There you go. No, uh, but, but uh, they've, they've gone through this examination of who the real Jesus is. And to, 
To give an illustration of this, uh, you all know this guy, old Santa, right? So um, they'll make this distinction, and it, you've got Santa Claus, right? Uh, he's right there. Um, but he's a lot different from the actual guy that he was based off of, which was St. Nick, right? St. Nicholas. And so, um, and by the way, St. Nick was a pretty cool guy. He punched a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. It's a, read about it. It's, it's really cool. Um, not that you should punch heretics, okay? Um, but uh, my humor is really dry, by the way. Especially now that I'm a dad. It's just dad jokes all the time. You know how it is. You just tell the same jokes over and over again, and they're hilarious every time. Or at least you think so. Um, so, obviously, Santa Claus is an embellishment of the historical Saint Nicholas, isn't he, right? And so historians are going to say, let's not focus on Santa. Let's uh, peel off all the layers of myth and embellishment and get back to the real guy who was the real Saint Nick who actually lived. So that's kind of what you'll get. Or it's kind of like, like the telephone game analogy here, right? Anybody remember playing the telephone game as a kid? So you get all the kids lined up, right? And then you whistle. And so the first guy makes up something and it says like, the Packers own the Bears, right? Um, and then they pass it along. And then what does the meaning say at the very end? Like local meat packers are, are packing bear meat, right? And they're like, wait, wait, that, that, that's not the original message. And so people think this is kind of what happened with the New Testament, right? What made its way into the text wasn't the same thing as the original message. Or uh, you guys know like fish tales, right? Like your uncle Stanley catches a muskie up north, right? And, and it's like a foot long. What does Stanley say at the next family reunion? It's like two feet long. Third year, it's three feet long. Ten years later, he caught a bluefin tuna, right? And so people say, well, how do we know that uh, what made it into the text is not a fish tale, fish story? So these are important questions. Uh, and, I've, and I've heard students tell me this right on campus this year. Well, to respond to this, uh, there's a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas, uh, and he's probably the world's... Uh, most well-read and astute resurrection scholar. I don't know if there's anyone on earth who knows more about the resurrection of Jesus than this guy. Um, for his doctoral dissertation, he reviewed all of the literature on Jesus' resurrection from 1970 in French, German, and um, one other language. So this guy, uh, I've actually met him, really nice guy. Turns out he's a Packers fan. If he wasn't, I, I don't know if I would trust his scholarship. Um, but, uh, just kidding. Uh, so there's a book called Contending with Christianity's Critics. And in chapter 9, he gives what he calls a timeline argument. And so he responds to these embellishment claims in a unique way. So you guys ready? Let's dive in. Okay. Um, Habermas asks this question. What if there were some way to know the nature of the earliest apostolic preaching and teaching between the years of 30 AD and 50? What if we knew some of the content of the earliest Christian preaching prior to the writing of the first New Testament book? So what if there's a way that we could know exactly what the apostles were teaching even before any book of the New Testament was even written? Pretty cool, huh? So this is what he calls the timeline argument. It seeks to show that the preaching of Jesus' resurrection is extremely early and is not likely the product of later mythical embellishment. 
All right, so hop in your DeLorean, because we're going back in time, guys, okay? Um, this is going to be fun. I, I know, it's cheesy. I got to make apologetics fun somehow, okay, guys? All right, so thinking about the resurrection, we could immediately go to the four gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that would be a good place to start. Obviously, there's an abundance of information about Jesus there. Um, so the four Gospels are excellent sources for learning about Jesus, okay? However, they're not the earliest sources we have, actually. So when you think about the Gospels, uh, Habermas puts it this way, these books are usually dated between 60 and 100, although the critical tendency is to date the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a little later. Mark is often placed about 80, 70, while Matthew and Luke are dated about 80 to 50. 85. There's widespread agreement regarding John, which is generally placed by all scholars in the last decade of the first century. Even critical scholars tend to differ only slightly from these common dates. So the critical tendency is to, is to view the Gospels as being dated later, like after 70 AD. I think a really good case can be made that at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written prior to 70 AD, which you, if you recall was, was when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Um, so we could start with the Gospels, but they're written a little bit later from the time of Jesus. Um, so the earliest sources we have actually for the resurrection are the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, etc. Habermas notes that of the 13 books that bear his name, six to eight are accepted as being authentic by skeptical scholars. Um, so even the most critical scholars will say that these books were Pauline. They were written by Paul, right? So Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, and 1 Thessalonians. Philemon and Colossians are sometimes included as well. So these, these books are usually dated between the decade of 50 and 60 AD. So we're getting even earlier now, right? So there's technically earlier sources for Jesus than the Gospels. Now, I think the Gospels are reliable, um, but we're just focusing on Paul's works here. All right, so our key text uh, is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And the minute I read it, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll definitely recognize this one. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. I suppose if you have a Bible, you could go there. Um, we're going to bounce around. It's not going to be like an exegetical study, but if you want to have that as kind of like your home base, we can do that. Okay. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, this is circa about 55 AD. So we're only looking at about 20 to 25 years after the cross. Um, and his famous words, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me as well. So how many guys have read this passage before, right? Very, very um, common uh, kind of explanation of the gospel. So I like how he says, I'm delivering to you that which is of first importance. So when you see that in the Bible, 
your light bulb should be going off. First important, he's saying, I'm sharing with you the number one most important thing. And then he lists uh, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then the appearances. Now this is a really special um, section of scripture. And I'll tell you why. So there's a key phrase. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. So you might not have clued in on that, but delivered and received language here, which is really key. So when did Paul first deliver this message to the Corinthian church? Well, if you ever read Acts 18, uh, we know that Paul first had a visit to Corinth five years prior to his letter to them. So if we scoot it back, this will be about 50 AD. And the 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 is considered to be widely an early creed that made its way into Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You guys know what a creed is, right? I'm not talking about the band from the early 2000s, okay? Um, totally different. Um, if you've ever, if you've been raised in like, from like Lutheran church or Catholic church, you might recall reciting like the Apostles' Creed, right? Or the Nicene Creed, where you recite this kind of like, like short statement, like I believe in God the Father, da 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 da, right? So a lot of people think that this is like a, a creed, like a widely distributed um, statement of faith, which makes sense. If that's the case, that means it didn't originate here in the text. It's, it goes back earlier. So why should we think that this passage is actually a creed? Well, there are some reasons here. You've got delivered and received preface, denoting the transfer of codified oral tradition, like I'm passing on to you something that is um, uh, prepackaged that, that we say. There's Aramaic substrata. So if you remember, Jesus would have spoke Aramaic. Peter's called Cephas instead of Peter. So we might be getting back to some of the earliest teaching. And apparently, too, there's stylized parallelism in Greek. So it's got a little bit of a cadence to it. And that's why memorizing songs are easier than uh, speeches, right? So apparently in Greek, it's got a bit of like da 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 right? So, so it, it, it's got a little bit of an easily memorizable fashion there. Um, and there are other reasons, too. But it, it looks like we're dealing with a creed. And uh, obviously, what made its way into the New Testament text was first transmitted by word of mouth, wasn't it, right? Um, nine out of 10 people couldn't write back then, so things were transmitted orally. And you might think that's a problem, but um, there is something that scholars call controlled oral tradition in the New Testament. So it wasn't just haphazard people sitting around a campfire exchanging stories and embellishing at will. Uh, in this same book, in chapter 11, Paul says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he's, he's praising them for holding to the traditions, which implies there was already a body of doctrine, right? There was already a codified uh, true teaching to be distinguished from false teaching right here, which is very interesting. All right, so now we can ask this question. Well, when did Paul get this information? We know when he handed it off to the Corinthians, and when did he originally get it? Well, 
The answer is most likely when he met with Peter and James for 15 days in Jerusalem, three years after his conversions. And so this is in Galatians 1, 15 through 20. So we can scoot the time frame back to about 36 AD. Let me just read it for you real quick here. Then three years later, so Paul gets converted on the road to Damascus. He spends about three years in Arabia, probably studying the scriptures. Uh, He says, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see another one of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. So he probably first got the information, at least, that made its way into the creed at this meeting. Now, there's an immediate objection people will give to this, and it's speculation, right? Uh, they'll say, look, there's, we don't have a transcript of what, what went down at this meeting, okay? Um, you're just assuming that they talked about the content of the creed, uh, but we don't know that for sure. And I would say, well, look, there is, sure, we don't have a transcript of, of what they talked about, but uh, there is such a thing as reasonable speculation, right? Can we reasonably infer that they would have talked about this content? Well, I definitely think so. So what did they talk about at this first meeting? Remember, this is is like a crazy meeting. Paul gets converted, he's killing Christians, and now he's got to meet with the apostles, and they're just like, this guy's saved? (laughs) Like, is he going to kill us? Um, and, And so this would have been an interesting meeting to be at. Well, we know probably what they would talk about because the theme of Galatians is the purity of the gospel message, and Paul's mention of his meeting occurs in that context. Also, Habermas notes that when speaking of his time with Peter and James, Paul used the Greek term historiesi, which is where we get our word history, which is often defined as gaining knowledge by personal inquiry or investigation, right? So it seems like Paul is sitting down with the apostles and interviewing them, learning about Jesus, getting stories of what he said and what he did, learning about the, about the resurrection. And remember, Paul said he's giving the Corinthians that which is of first importance. So it would have been odd for him not to talk about the gospel content if that's the most important thing. I don't see how they couldn't have talked about the stuff that made its way into the creed. So Paul actually had another meeting with the apostles 14 years later. So he's got powwow number one, now powwow number two, okay? So in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, uh, he says this, Then after 14 years, so 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul's like, I'm going back to the apostles just to make sure I'm getting this gospel right. Um, He's preaching to the Gentiles, and he just goes back and says, I want to make sure that we're both on the same page. And he said, and from those who seemed influential, uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, here we go, added nothing to me. What does that mean? It means they gave him a thumbs up. They're like, hey, I like your gospel. It's our gospel. We're on the same page. Keep on preaching it, bro. I don't know if they said bro, but, um, and uh, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been in, in, entrusted with 
the gospel to the circumcised, and then James and Cephas and John. Okay, so so now we know who who's at this second meeting. It's James, Peter, and John, along with Paul. Well, that's like the center of Christianity, wasn't it? Right, and so this would have been an incredible meeting. So imagine this. Imagine eavesdropping on conversations between Paul, Peter, James, and John. I would have wanted like a first row seat at this thing, like because they're telling stories of Jesus. Uh, talking about the resurrection appearances. Um, this was an incredible meeting. They're all here in one spot. And uh, so here's the million dollar question. How far does Paul's creedal material go? So I think you've seen what we've been doing. We're working our way back in time. We're tracing the breadcrumbs. So how, how far does Paul's material go? Well, I'm going to let skeptical scholars do the argumentation for me here, okay? Um, so I'm going to use critics' data. So this is German atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann. So that there are actually atheists who study the New Testament professionally. Makes you wonder, like, why bother? Uh, but but uh, um, it makes sense. I mean, the New Testament is one of the most important books ever written, so there's people who study it just out of... Uh, from literary curiosity, right? So, so, so this guy, an atheist, Ludemann, thinks that, quote, the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion, not later than three years after the death of Jesus. So, so this guy says, hey, this m material, maximum that we can go post-cross is three years. Pretty short time, isn't it? Did anybody remember the Jesus Seminar? So back in the 80s, there was this extremely theologically liberal think tank of scholars who got together to find the real Jesus, right? Um, and uh, they all got together and cast beads into a jar to vote on which verses were really said by Jesus. Uh, they concluded that only 2% of what we find in the New Testament was really said by Jesus. It's like, there's something off here. <laughs> um, and, but anyway, so this isn't exactly a conservative fundamentalist uh, uh, think tank. And so the founder of the Jesus Seminar, Robert Funk, uh, again, definitely not an evangelical fundamentalist, um, he said, the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted, about 33 CE. On the assumption that Jesus died about 30 CE, the time for development was thus, was thus two or three years at most, right? So the development of the, of the gospel, only two or three years after the cross. All right, so let's take a look at atheist and mythicist Richard Carrier. So this guy is an atheist activist. Um, he's a mythicist, which means he doesn't think Jesus existed as a, as a historical person. So, there's a whole movement of people that believe this. It's like the flat earth version of atheism. <laughs> um, and uh, so Carrier on his blog, uh, he'll have readers give questions. So a blog reader asks him this question. He says, I keep hearing Christian apologists like me insisting that the Corinthian creed can be reliably dated to the 30s AD, just years or even months after Jesus died. Can you, can you direct me to a solid refutation of that claim. Here's what Carrier says. The answer is no, because there is no refutation of this claim, 
other than maybe it possibly originated later, which is the logical fallacy of possibiliter, ergo probabiliter, it's possible, therefore it's probable. In fact, the evidence for this creed dating to the very origin of the religion is amply strong, and there is no reasonable basis for claiming otherwise. So this guy doesn't even believe Jesus existed, and he thinks the creed goes way, way back, right? So if you got this guy conceding that, we're sitting on some pretty solid evidence here. This is what's called hostile testimony. World-renowned British scholar James D.G. Dunn puts the creed back even further. This is what he says. He says, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. We're not talking about years anymore. We're talking months, which is pretty wild. You've got, so we've got all these highly skeptical scholars conceding that, hey, this tradition that we see in 1 Corinthians goes way back. So if you want to get a visual depiction of this, you could go like this. Um, Paul writes 1 Corinthians in 55 AD. We want to say, well, well when did he hand it off to them? Well, five years prior uh, in 50. Now, where did Paul get this information? Well, probably when he learned about the creed from the apostles in 36 AD at his initial meeting. But then we got to ask, where did the apostles get this? Well, we're looking like right on top of the cross, like right out of the gate, we've got the gospel message codified and packaged and ready to preach, which is pretty cool. And so you can follow the breadcrumbs in history using sources that even the most skeptical scholars agree on. So that would be the uh, works of Paul. Tracking with me here? All right. Picking up what I'm laying down? Okay. All right. So what if the skeptic still wants to insist that the first Corinthians 15 Creed and the Gospels are far too late for accurate history to be transmitted. Well, here's what I would do. You got to ask this question. If you're going to be so hardcore skeptical, what if we applied those principles to other people in ancient history and see what happens? So let's do some historical counterexamples. So we got Alexander the Great, Siddhartha Gautama. Does anybody know who he was? Yeah, he was the Buddha, right? Um, and uh, Emperor Tiberius. So let's do some historical counter-examples here. All right, so Alexander the Great. None of the major works on Alexander were, were written less than 300 years after his death. It's three centuries. The biographies of Alexander were looking at 400 to 450 years after his death. That's not months, <laughs> okay? That's centuries. So we've got Arian, the Anabasis of Alexander, and Plutarch, Life of Alexander. And if there are any expecting moms, Plutarch might be a good name for your kid. So um, I approve. How about the Buddha, Sid Siddhartha Gautama? Well, if we're talking mythical embellishment here, we've got some interesting facts. So the Buddha's death was in circa 483 BC. The Pali Canon, that are the main works, uh, were written in AD 29. The Buddha Karat, biographies of Buddha, A.D. 200. So the time between the Buddha's death and earliest recorded writings, we're looking 512 to 683 years, right? We have to ask, how do we determine who's the real Buddha and who's the mythical Buddha? Do you see? The more time you have, the, the more opportunity you have for embellishment. Well, let's take a look at Jesus. Jesus' death, 
circa AD 30, Paul's earliest letter, 48, earliest gospel, probably 55 to 65. So the time between Jesus' death and the earliest recorded writings, uh, we're looking at 18 to 35 years. If you take the creed, we're looking at maybe months. So do do you see a really, really big difference already? Just wait, it gets better. Okay, we're going to do a duel between Jesus of Nazareth and uh, Emperor Tiberius. Fight! No. Um, and uh, so something really interesting happens when you compare these two figures. So does anybody know who Emperor Tiberius was? Caesar, right? When? Long time ago. Long time ago? <laughs> Correct. Um, uh, well, he was the emperor while Jesus was alive. So during Jesus' ministry, Tiberius, Caesar, was the emperor. So when he says, like, who, whose face is on this coin? That's whose face would be on it. Would have, would have been Tiberius. This gets really interesting. The most reliable sources come 80-plus years after his death. So we're looking at Tacitus and Suetonius. So the best sources for Tiberius, we're looking at 80 years. For the emperor that existed while Jesus was in ministry, And just for fun, we can look at this, too. How about the number of secular non-Christians? We're talking about non-Christian written sources that mention Jesus of Nazareth within 150 years of his death. We've got nine. I'll I'll list them. Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Phlegon, Lucian, Celsus, Suetonius, Thallus, and Marabar Serapion. Another good baby name, too. Um, And... um, now, here's where things get wild. What about the number of secular non-Christian sources that mention Emperor Tiberius within 150 years of his death? It's nine. So we've got just as much documentation for Jesus of Nazareth, a Galilean peasant preacher, than we do for the emperor who existed while he was in ministry. You, you should probably ask yourself, what's the deal with this carpenter? Why is he getting so much press? Maybe there's something really special about him. So if you're not a Christian, that should cause you to think, like, like I should really look into what this carpenter had to say. He, he's getting so much press, just as much as the emperor, which is pretty fascinating. So if, <laughs> Ratatouille, right? So if, if the critic wants to accept the historicity and reliability of these sources, but still wants to reject the New Testament as an embellishment, well, I'm just going to show them this meme. Right? Double standards, right? Here's what I found a, l- a lot of skeptics do. When um, what do you buzz? What year? Yep, that's infinity and beyond, man. So I like Toy Story. It's a good one. Uh, so what I find a lot of skeptics do is when it comes to the Bible, they turn their skeptical dial way up. You know, they crank it to 11, right? But when it comes to any other historical person, Alexander the Great or Buddha, they turn their skeptical dial way down, right? Now, we do this with politics and everything, don't we, right? <laughs> right? Um, but, but uh, right? And so what I found is if you take your skeptical dial and just have it at a reasonable level <laughs> and apply it equally to the Bible as you would to any other historical figure, it turns out the Bible comes out with flying colors. In fact, it's probably one of the best attested books we have. Um, and so if you're going to go be ultra skeptical, you're going to end up paying a heavy price with looking at, do we know anything in ancient history now? Right. Um, and so, yeah. 
Additional points that question the embellishment claim, and we are landing the plane here, guys, okay? So think about the telephone game. Well, this refers to transmission between individuals, right? You, you whisper into the ear, and then one person tells it to another. Not communal transmission between groups of people. So this is how it would have really been in the New Testament era. People are preaching the gospel. The disciples are telling stories about Jesus in community, right? Memorizing and saying things and fact, like doing like a fact check with each other. So it wasn't one, 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 one. It was a whole group of people. And psychologically, we know we tend to memorize things better when uh, they're like really astounding events in our life too, right? I can't remember what I had for breakfast a week ago, but I can remember my wedding day, okay? Um, and also the whole telephone game thing, well, it's an analogy, not an argument. Analogies aren't arguments. They're just stories people tell of how something might be. You've got to do the hard work of showing that it's that way, okay? Second, it doesn't take into account the memorization abilities of people in first century Jewish oral culture, okay? So remember, Jesus' time, nine out of 10 people couldn't read or write, okay? Everything was transmitted by word of mouth. That, that's how rabbis taught, it's just by repetition, repetition, memorization. Um, and the abilities of even Jewish boys to memorize stuff was insane. Jewish boys by like 13 oftentimes would have the entire Torah memorized in Hebrew, right? Even today, we find this memorization capability existing in different parts of the world. Uh, if you know Muslims, in more traditional parts of the Middle East, a lot of Muslim boys have the entire Quran memorized in Arabic. Um, I talked to a girl on campus last year. She told me that she was a, a Muslim girl. She, she said she had the entire Quran memorized in Arabic, and she didn't even understand Arabic, right? And so memorization capabilities um, in more traditional cultures like this was just commonplace. That's how you learn things. So it would have been very easy. I mean, the Gospels aren't that long, right? It would have been very easy for them to transmit this content. Three, it doesn't uh, account for the early church's concern for preserving and sticking to tradition, right? So there's clear indications of true and false doctrine, right? That they weren't just making it up on the spot over the campfire, right? Um, and uh, finally, I know the skeptic won't accept this, but it doesn't account for the role of the Holy Spirit in the writing of the New Testament, okay? Now, they'll say, well, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, but we know that the Holy Spirit aided the writers in, in getting this document off. So there are some additional points that question the embellishment claim. So it looks like um, we've got this. So the bottom line, wrapping it all up here, the core message of Christianity, the gospel, was formulated by eyewitnesses and was extremely early, especially by ancient standards. So this is what historians want. They want early and eyewitness, okay? They want uh, stuff that didn't happen, you know, centuries later, but as close to the events as possible. And if we're looking at this creed being developed within months, we're sitting pretty good here, right? So we can know that at a minimum, the core gospel message was not likely to have been embellished over time. So do you see how this all works? So you can trace the breadcrumbs back in time, which is fun. All right, so we're gonna wrap it up here with some quick practical application. So we've done a lot of facts and a lot of argumentation. What's the take home for you just this week as you, uh, as you live your life?
Well, later on in, well, I was thinking, okay, how do I apply this to everyone's life? But I was thinking, wait a minute, the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 gives practical application. So I thought, I'll just let Paul speak for me. So later on, Paul in uh, 55 to 57, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't, so Paul's quoting Hosea here, and I don't think he's just being poetic, like, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I think Paul's trash talking here. He's like, death, you think you, you can judge me, Satan? You think you can put my sins in my face here? Look at the scoreboard. You lost, right? Did you know my Lord rose from the dead? You lost. You're going down, okay? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Jesus literally defeated death, which is awesome. And so how does Paul apply it to our lives practically then? Well, this is what he says. It's in chapter 15, and this is after all of his talk about the resurrection from the dead and all this. He says, therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, hey, we've got a risen Jesus. We're heaven bound. We're going to have glorified bodies because of this. Because of this, just be steadfast, immovable. Not because of how righteous you are, but because how righteous Jesus is, right? Be in the Lord, in Jesus abound in the work of the Lord, knowing it's not in vain. You're not wasting your time here. Jesus is the real deal. He's the risen Lord, okay? So your labor is not in vain. So, so this is a, maybe if you're just feeling kind of blah, or you're feeling discouraged, well, the resurrection of Jesus is, is real, and, and we can show it, and use that as motivation to, to just bask in the grace and love of Jesus, and, and to continue on following him, okay? And this is what apologetics can do. It can help clear away some doubts and things that really trip us up and can help us move forward as we follow him. So with that, why don't we just wrap it up in prayer real quick here, okay? All right, Lord. So we thank you, God, that you've given us all kinds of amazing evidence and reasons and arguments. And, and we thank you that you rose from the dead. You're the risen Lord. You've defeated death. Um, and I pray that that would just really sink in this week and we would follow you and we would just be steadfast immovable, always abounding in, in what you've got for us, and to never look back and to know that because of you, Jesus, our labor is not in vain. Um, and I pray you would encourage us and to just kind of just go back to the, to the gospel message once again, to just go back to the well of your grace and your love. Um, so we thank you for this time, um, and I just uh, pray this all in your name. Amen.